Welcome to Feminist Question Time, which is brought to you by Women's Human Rights Campaign, uh, the leading global organisation speaking on women's sex-based rights. Our main focus is on defending women's sex-based rights against the threat of gender identity ideology. You can find more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our declaration, which has been signed by 17,320 people from 136 countries and is supported by 339 organisations. This week, we, our theme is lesbian visibility, and we have uh, Suzanne Bischoff from Germany, Olesia Saigadak from Ukraine. We hope to have Jenny White from New Zealand. Uh, Christina Gramolini from Italy, Zoe Blunt from Canada, Paulina Tiplakava from Russia and Angela C. Wilde from France stroke UK. Our first speaker, Suzanne Bischoff, she, Bischoff from Germany. She's one of the organizers of Lesbian Spring Festival 2021. She's going to tell us an update um, of what's been happening to that. Over to you, Suzanne. I'm one of the organizers of this year Lesbian Spring Gathering, the annual event for lesbians in Germany. We are viciously, I don't know this word really, attacked with attempts to change the content and structure of this gathering once and for all. The gathering, the LFT, has existed since 1974, making it the oldest festival for lesbians in Germany. It's the annual event where lesbians can meet, have fun, develop lesbian culture, discuss and all their range, political strategies and differences, the issues that are important to lesbians. Each year, there's a different organization team as lesbians come forward to organize it in their city. This means each year has a different focus and each year there are discussions about these. Discussions of queer feminist groups and trans organizations are new due to the series within participatory groups of the LFT. That means that queer and trans persons are not excluded and are a small and also integrated group in the history of the LFT. This year, there's an unbelievable media campaign against the LFT with massive attacks in the press against parts of our program that are branded as transphobic. Speakers and also some organizers are publicly defamed politically and as individuals. This has also cost us personal friendships. Our crime at a festival for women loving women, our motto, lesbian spring, rising to the roots. Rising here means rejoining the roots of political, spiritual, women's and lesbians' knowledge, culture and the feminist struggle for women and children in the current situation in Germany and doing this with an international perspective. This entails active engagement with queer feminist positions and with different developments in radical feminist and theory. Our approach was 
I don't know this bus. I specifically uh, designed to enable listening to each other without pulling each other down. Our program has now been reduced to the transphobic and nothing else. No other LFT, which we have had to move online because of the pandemic too, has been this public. The joy and richness of our program is being distorted and ridiculed. Each day, really each day, another queer or normally lesbian group joins the ranks of those attacking us. Each day, another statement copied from the previous ones with no research, no attempt at speaking to us, no knowledge of what the festival is, is built on. These attacks hurt us emotionally, of course, but also practically. And it hurts future organizers as they effectively threaten each woman, each lesbian, warning us of what will be done to us if we do not choose the line. The attacks are coordinated and target our funding. This attacking women will work is voluntary we, the organizers, aren't paid, and it will hurt future organizing team, teams, and we believe that is also the intent. They come from well-endowed, publicly-founded organizations. The tone is very escalating. As always, the terms used are TERFs, transphobic, and more racist and contemptuous of human beings, and especially these late words, because of our history, are very worse terms in Germany you can throw at someone. And a term to end debate and to exclude lesbians and women who refuse to be subordinated to trans demands. Now, if you can, please write a letter, a statement of support for us, and send it, send it to us. We are putting the link in the chat to show lesbians of all ages, now in Germany, but all the world, are not isolated. We cordially invite all women loving women to participate in our digital lesbian spring gathering. Women and lesbians speak loudly like you do, for women's and lesbians' rights to organize to organize around the issues that matter to us in ways that we think are the good ways for us and from a woman-centered feminist perspective. Finally, and also to you all, we want to thank everyone to the great support we receive as a small group. Many, many women, many lesbians are on the are on the move, and I'm a sport teacher. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're now going to talk to Alessia Sagaidak from Ukraine. She's a journalist, a radical feminist, WHRC volunteer, and she's a member of Radical Girls. So Alessia, how long have you been a lesbian? And can you tell us about the lesbian community you've been part of? I've been a lesbian for all my life, but I found that this is really hard for, I guess, not only Ukrainians, but generally Slavic women to understand that they are lesbians because of very 
family-based, very patriarch patriarchal and uh, conservative um, focus of our countries. So I've met so many women who are, uh, they, you know, they have, uh, they like, um, they may be attracted to women, they may be were like they think attracted to women and all these things, but they believe that this is, this is just a phase and they decided to get married. Um, about the community, well, yeah, I was a part of community, but it wasn't a lesbian community. And I believe the, the time when, uh, you know, I was very into being a part of like local communities in my country, um, there were, at least in my hotel, hometown, there were no, uh, you know, only lesbians, only women community. So I was a part of LGBT community. And um, well, uh, it was, you know, like the govern like body of this community and like you know for i mean it, it this implies for almost every lgbt community in ukraine uh the govern the govern body were men and of course they were pursuing their interests uh of course the, there was like a man gay men focused agenda uh at the time but i mean i was young and i didn't see a problem with it i thought that you know how how they always do this they um manipulated in that gay men, they struggle more than lesbians, gay men struggle more than women. So I, you know, I was supporting them. And uh, that's the thing that I, um, I see in a lot of other communities, at least in Ukraine and, you know, other Slavic countries, that women, lesbians, they are, uh, you know, they decide to team up with men because they feel empathy towards them. They think that they struggle more and they also see that these men are in the governed body of all those organizations. So in order to uh, fight for their own rights, in order to you know, pursue lesbian agenda, they team up with those men. But in the end of the day, uh, lesbian agenda more or less being showed in, you know, like lesbian visibility weeks and, and that's it. Like you cannot really see like, you know, lesbian be, lesbians being visible in those communities, visible uh, via like those um, pride walks or something like this. They like all those uh, really vocal, visible people who are given interviews, who are being really, loudly spoken, those are gay men, uh, trans women, and uh, drag queens. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, so that's, it happens so often, doesn't it? How about uh, the gender identity politics? Has it changed life for lesbians and, uh, you know, made things different? But I guess you're very young, so it's maybe always been <laughs> I am very young, but as you know, like things, um, come to Ukraine really slowly. So yeah, I've, I've seen the protests in Ukraine like coming with gender identity becoming, you know, getting more popular within like six years maybe. Uh, because I became an activist when I was like 14 or 15, I believe. So yeah, I've seen this. And I can say that uh, at the time it was 2016, I think that I really like was um, prepared to come out and be an LGBT organization. Uh, it was again, men focused, but then within three years, uh, Ukraine started to be more 
pro-EU, they started pro-EU policy. And again, it, it obviously requires uh, our government to change their focus on LGBT rights more. But again, it's all about like uh, gender identity, trans and all this stuff. So yeah, media was all about that. And um, LGBT organizations were somewhat, um, I don't want to say forced, but kind of manipulated maybe sometimes into, you know, persuasion of this too. And, uh, you know, the first time I heard lesbians can have penises, I eventually left for good. And, uh, you know, like it was, it was, you know, I, I know those people who I've been working with, and I know that they were, maybe not all of them were into it. And maybe, uh, you know, some of them were even, you know, having some critique of it and being pretty much gender critique, but they were not able to say this loudly. And do you get um, men uh, uh, in, you know, in the community or in the groups who say that they're lesbians? I personally never met those, uh, but, uh, and like publicly, I never saw them exist, but I know um, there are very famous uh, trans women. Um, and, uh, but, you know, like generally our society is pretty conservative and uh, they do not get these things really seriously. So even those men, they were basically just made fun of even by a president. So right now, no. Yeah, and how about young lesbians? Are there places for young lesbians to go that are not the LGBTQ groups? Or is it, do you just have to, if you want to try to meet, is that the only place? Um, well, um, I can say that lesbians somehow are not really interested in those communities. Like when I was a part of them and when I was investigating some of them, there were more of men in those communities. But uh, I've met, you know, during my lifetime, I've met a lot of lesbians and uh, I do link up with them. And what, like, what do I see? There is an interesting inconsistency in, you know, like in the views of those women. Uh, like one, like one half of them uh, will be saying that you can only be a lesbian behind shut doors. And they, they think that, for example, sex education has to be forbidden and things like that. And there are two reasons for that. Uh, first reason is that, again, our, our society is very patriarchal, family-based, and they just think that everything that is not about family, about, you know, like a traditional structure should be behind shut doors. And the second reason to this, and I've heard this a lot, that they feel ashamed of how LGBT communities represent us with all those drag queens, uh, health naked gay men, and even some gay men do critique this because um, you know this is this is too much of a sexual exposure to this, and many people really don't feel comfortable with it. So they do not agree that this should be like uh, loud and vocal because they don't understand that it can be shown other ways. The other half of lesbians that I met, they were all uh, radical feminists. And I'm really glad to say this because I see that radical feminism becomes more and more popular, even though 
there were no like really, you know, popular radical feminists in here. They are um, at the same time, they're vocal because there is right now, there is no like such a big and um, definitely a cancel culture in here. So you cannot be fired from work, for example. So they feel really uh, free to speak. And that's, that's really that I'm glad of. Uh, unfortunately, big, um, you know, LGBT centered media, they does not, you know, like, or even like just um, feminism based media, they do not give the floor for those women to speak, but it's still, um, it's still, I'm glad to see that they speak without fear. I've got a question about the EU. Are they giving funding? Do they, do they have any programs that support lesbians in Ukraine or is that not something or, or the UN or any international agencies? Of course, I mean, yeah, you can apply for, uh, fin I mean, financial support, but um, there is no like guarantee that you will receive it. And of course they have their own, uh, you know, like rules or how how to present, what to say to be very inclusive of, you know, you know who and you know what and you know how. So um, this is this is something that people, when they face it, they decide to make funds by themselves. Because I mean, when you apply for funding, you understand that you kind of will be influenced by those people and those people will want you to say and act how they want you to say and act but uh to the challenges i think that right now this is a really good time for radical feminists or just lesbians uh to cooperate and separate from all those lgbt organizations they're really influential and big run by those gay men trans women and you know separate from it and create their own uh you know ukrainian organization community of lesbians because right now i believe that there is a like there is a time when we're not going to be as much criticized and canceled for doing so because right now ukraine is still more like in feminism circles more women oriented without inclusions and we have much of critique from eu and in stuff but that's it that's that's the reality right now so i'm so pleased to welcome uh christina gramolini who she's from italy president and co-founder of archie lesbica mio intervento si intitola lesbica in italia sotto pressione Quale politica lesbica viene sviluppata in Italia in questo momento? Per rispondere alla domanda parlerò di come è cambiato il panorama della comunità LGBT dal 2016, anno in cui l'Italia ha adottato una legge che riconosce le unioni civili tra persone di stesso sesso. Da quel momento è entrata in scena la rivendicazione dell'utero in affitto e una generazione che si definisce transfemminista ha preso in mano il movimento delle donne aprendolo a tutti. Questi avvenimenti hanno messo le lesbiche sotto pressione. Esemplificherò infine le contraddizioni attuali attraverso una breve trattazione del dibattito in corso a proposito di una legge contro l'omotransfobia. Negli anni 80 e 90 è nato e si è sviluppato in Italia un movimento lesbo-femminista separatista 
che aveva centro nelle grandi città e si era dotato di case editrici, bollettini, appuntamenti periodici, disdegnava la lotta per i matrimoni omosessuali e diffidava delle strumentalizzazioni delle sinistre, di partito e extraparlamentari. Diffondeva cultura come visibilità a lesbiche allora molto velate. Dopo una risoluzione del Parlamento europeo nel 1994 a favore dei cittadini omosessuali, hanno preso quota le mobilitazioni gay per il riconoscimento delle coppie dello stesso sesso. E in un panorama LGBT di prevalente partecipazione mista, è nata anche Arcilesbica nel 1996 come associazione di sole donne, con l'ambizione un po' ingenua di portare nella lotta per i diritti civili il sale dell'espofemminismo. Dopo 20 lunghi anni da quel momento, l'Italia si è finalmente dotata di una legge sulle unioni civili nel 2016. Frattanto, in sordina, si erano moltiplicate le nascite nelle coppie omosessuali, ottenute prima tramite la collaborazione non medicalizzata tra gay e lesbiche, con l'autoinseminazione. Poi, sempre più di frequente, le lesbiche hanno fatto ricorso all'estero all'inseminazione artificiale e i gay all'utero in affitto, sempre all'estero. Si trattava di eventi privati che però hanno preso gradualmente parola pubblica. Nel cammino alcune trans MTF hanno chiesto e ottenuto di diventare nostre socie. Lesbiche, gay e trans eravamo soprattutto persone discriminate in un paese arretrato e la richiesta di riconoscimento delle relazioni omosessuali sovrastava il dibattito all'interno del movimento LGBT. Nel 2016 arriva la legge sulle unioni civili e, senza neppure un attimo di passaggio, il movimento gay ha subito indicato l'obiettivo successivo, quello della legalizzazione della surrogazione di maternità, dando per scontato che le lesbiche lo avrebbero supportato. Nella mia memoria, se il 1994 è stato l'anno della spinta alla politica dei diritti, il 2016 è stato l'anno della lacerazione nel movimento LGBT. Alcune di noi hanno negato il supporto alla richiesta gay e questo rifiuto è stato considerato un tradimento, anche da alcune nostre socie che dopo un'aspra lotta interna hanno abbandonato l'associazione arcilesbica. Abbiamo detto di no, perché l'utero in affitto per noi è uso coloniale del corpo femminile ridotto a corpo macchina, depersonalizzato, deumanizzato per motivi di profitto. Da lì siamo diventate bersaglio di una rabbia smisurata dei gay che ci hanno dileggiate, diffamate, ci hanno cacciato dalla sede comune a Bologna, a Milano, in ciò sostenuti da lesbiche loro alleate e nel silenzio delle altre donne. A mio giudizio questo è stato ed è un errore politico da parte gay, commesso nella convinzione di annientare rapidamente il dissenso, ma che al contrario ha radicalizzato la nostra opposizione e ci ha sciolte da ogni vincolo di relazione politica o amicale con loro. 
abbiamo appreso che questi fatti riproponevano in Italia quanto già accaduto in altri paesi occidentali. Il movimento LGBT sta mostrando dunque un inedito volto punitivo e aggressivo, un virilismo che segna un passaggio culturale. Io lo interpreto come la reazione di uomini bianchi e abbienti che si sentono finalmente integrati e non intendono essere privati, tantomeno per iniziativa di donne, dei privilegi che l'Occidente offre a chi può permetterseli. La questione sarebbe triste, ma non preoccupante, se non si sommasse purtroppo a un altro fenomeno, la presa di alcuni importanti spazi delle donne da parte di giovani dell'estrema sinistra che usano metodi intolleranti, imbevute di una dottrina che chiamano transfemminista e che loro presentano come una evoluzione del femminismo. Essa, la dottrina, consiste nel dichiarare il termine femminismo compromesso con il privilegio delle donne bianche eterosessuali. Eh, da ciò la scelta di superare il femminismo attraverso il prefisso trans, che idealizza le persone transessuali in quanto spezzerebbero le catene del genere, benché in realtà rafforzino le, le norme di genere, con la loro volontà di passare all'altro sesso invece che viversi liberamente il corpo. Il transfemminismo non è solo un concetto, ma è un progetto che si spaccia per ribelle alla morale dei ben pensanti. Il progetto è di inquadrare il sistema prostituente come lavoro, di accettare la autocertificazione di genere e ammettere che esistano lesbiche con il pene. Poi il progetto è di chiamare autodeterminazione la messa in vendita del proprio potere riproduttivo. Il transfemminismo è anche pratica di esclusione delle donne cosiddette TERF, cioè quelle che non si lasciano derubricare a variante CIS della donna intesa solo come effetto discorsivo, e delle SWERF, cioè quelle che non concordano a considerare la prostituzione come un lavoro. A questo progetto si accompagna il solito maternage femminile verso gli ultimi, che contemporaneamente nega alle donne divergenti anche la parola. La parte del femminismo italiano che non è confluita nel transfemminismo ne teme però le ritorsioni e si tiene a distanza dalla circoscritta rete fatta di femministe radicali, lesbiche femministe come noi e anche alcuni gay che non piegano la testa in silenzio. Il lesbismo italiano mi appare oggi così delineato Dopo che molti gruppi storici di sole lesbiche nel tempo si sono sciolti, da una parte ci siamo noi lesbiche femministe in lotta contro i falsi diritti e per il mantenimento della differenza sessuale, dall'altra ci sono aggregazioni lesbiche appiattite sull'alleanza LGBT e si accresce un gran numero di attiviste lesbiche che milita nelle associazioni miste, sia integrazioniste che antisistema. Da quasi un anno è arrivata in Parlamento una proposta di legge contro l'omotransfobia in Italia, che ha dato modo al movimento LGBT di reiterare i discorsi basati sullo schema della discriminazione patita. 
abbiamo constatato che le persone trans sono generalmente ritenute le più vulnerabili, le più meritevoli di opportunità e allo stesso tempo la loro favolosità è al centro dell'interesse degli studi di genere, ma anche della moda e della curiosità. La rete femminista di cui siamo parte ha variamente contestato il disegno di legge perché contiene definizioni di genere e di identità di genere fumose e pericolose. A questo i proponenti hanno risposto con il tentativo di isolarci, di decimarci, di spingerci verso la destra, ma stanno perdendo forza. Arcilesbica ha chiesto di rendere esplicito nel testo della legge che parlare contro l'utero in affitto non dovrà essere considerato omofobico, così come respingere la rivendicazione trans della self-identification non dovrà essere considerato transfobico. I partiti di centrosinistra al momento non hanno accolto le nostre richieste, perché i consensi del movimento LGBT sono corposi quelli che può portare o togliere. Allora abbiamo deciso di scrivere un libro ehm, perché percepiamo che lo scontro in atto non è la solita litigiosità, ma un crinale di separazione etica e politica. Nell'aprile 21, 2021 è uscito il nostro Noi le lesbiche, preferenza femminile e critica al transfemminismo. Un testo scritto per chiarire il nostro pensare e per discutere, ma il movimento LGBT ancora rifiuta il dialogo con noi e ci accusa di omofobia, transfobia e di cercare pubblicità per noi. Un clima pesante di odio si respira nel movimento che lotta contro l'odio e per i diritti dell'amore. Osservo che il linguaggio trucido non sta pagando il movimento LGBT, Penso quindi che non dovremmo farvi ricorso neanche noi. E ripongo non poca speranza nell'ironia, formidabile arma politica verso chi si prende troppo sul serio e agisce in chiave militarista e vittimista allo stesso tempo. Spero si possa ripristinare un clima civile di discussione pur nel disaccordo. La speranza più grande, ripongo però, nelle giovani lesbiche che ci confessano di aver fatto parte dell'area transfemminista e poi essersi accorte di starci male e aver cercato e trovato il modo di raggiungerci. Una spicciolata di coraggiose si mette in contatto con noi obbedendo a una presa di coscienza che si fa strada, quella della forma presente della guerra contro le donne. Grazie. We're going to now go to Zoe Blunt. Zoe's from Canada. She's an eco-feminist warrior from the west coast of Canada. And so welcome, Zoe. Um, can you tell us about the recent history of women's land in your part of the world? It's kind of a fascinating history. Um, you know, many of us, uh, you may be aware of um, women's land, uh, women-only communities, lesbian communities, have a history worldwide really going back as you probably know to the time of Sappho and beyond and uh, and there are still communities everywhere in the world as far as I know and, and every continent there are women who have you know it's something spontaneous that that has is always happening and um Back in the 70s and 80s in North America, there was a, a big, uh, this was the beginning of a big back to the land movement. And it coincided with you know, lesbian and gay liberation. Uh, 
and women's liberation. And so that we saw this big surge, there are hundreds at one point, hundreds of um, little collectives, land collectives, uh, cooperatives that formed, you know, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, in, in the South, here up in Canada. And, uh, and, and it was, many of these uh, communities still exist. Um, the, over the decades, there's been uh, they've they've there's been an arc for many of them, and it's um, many of you may be uh, familiar with the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which uh, ran for over 40 years on 140 acres or so in in the state of Michigan, and um, eventually, of course, the owners uh, went from starting out in their 40s. Now they are, I believe, in their 80s, and they made a decision to sell the land and they could no longer continue with the festival. And the amazing thing was that the, the land was purchased by the We Want the Land Committee and it was crowdfunded. So this is the, the interesting thing about these lesbian cooperatives and, and land trusts and, and collectives that have formed, they are entirely grassroots. It is entirely women doing it for themselves. And in this case, in the We Want the Land Committee, they purchased 100 acres and the festivals are continuing. It is still continuing as women's land. And so it is, it is it's the same arc has happened with um, many of the hundreds of collectives that were originally established. Um, so here I'm, I'm living on a, a small uh, farm called Spinstervale on Vancouver Island. And uh, similar, um, we, uh, we've, it, we're, it's, it's all, women have done this from themselves from scratch, from the beginning. Um, in this case, and in, in many of the others nearby in Oregon, there are dozens of, uh, Oregon and Washington state, there are dozens of women's land collectives that still exist. And many of them are, you know, as, as the women have aged, they need to bring in new members. Some of them have folded, some of them are for sale. And many of them are looking for new members and they are revitalizing one of them after 50 years. And it is, I'm just so inspired by, by the work that these women are doing because in, in most of these cases, you know, this is not a, a luxury resort by any stretch. Women have come to these areas and found, you know, um, it's starting with clearing the land or breaking up the concrete or clearing out whatever industrial uh, um, detritus was left there and actually creating the soil, creating the farms, building the houses by hand. The houses here, um, none of them were built by professionals. Uh, the ones that were built here were built by women doing it, many of them for the very first time. So it's been an absolutely inspiring example of what women can do if, if, if no one stands in their way. And they have had to overcome a lot of obstacles, obviously. What are the relations like with the local and wider community? Do you get on or do you get attacked? Well, as you said, it's not widely advertised. I think the only place people would only know about Spinstervale from the Lesbian Connection. If, if, uh, if folks who are on that subscription list, um, they've been advertising there for some time. Um, and it's, it is uh, widely known. I think every lesbian on Vancouver Island knows about it, but that is, that's um, word of mouth. 
And when they first started here, you know, they are openly lesbian. There's, you know, they're, they're not, um, but they were targeted. And uh, one of one of the stories I was told is that they have, there's a, a great tall row of trees along along the road, between the road and the, and the lower gardens and the main house. And they planted those trees because uh, men would drive past and throw bottles and, and try and hit the house with rocks and, and show abuse. I found a beautiful, I've only been here for nine months actually, but I found this a big beautiful wooden sign that says Spinster Vale. And it's, it's uh, in, in one of the greenhouses now and they don't display it anymore because of um, that kind of violent hostility and aggression. And yet um, women know to come here if, if they need help. And so it has been a refuge. It has been a sanctuary for women. You know, I, I really recommend it. Anyone who has spent any time in women only space, um, it is, you, you know how, how wonderful it is. And uh, at this point, um, you know, the work that women have done here and putting in uh, the electricity, putting in the, the cables, the wires. And uh, so we, we do, they do rely on tradespeople from time to time, but mostly it is 90% do it yourself. Are you involved in a, in a sort of new thing called a women's land project? Is that a specific yes. thing? Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually involved in a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I should really say I'm, I'm, I'm a retired eco-warrior. I am now a, a, a spinster farmer <laughs> with my cat. Um, but I am. Uh, we, we did start the Women's Land Project uh, over a year ago. Um, we had, uh, and we being, um, I'm, I'm also with the Rad Femmes of Canada, the uh, Radical Feminists of Canada, radfems.ca. And, uh, and with a few other groups, the Church of Women's Liberation. Um, so we started the Women's Land Project as like, well, what can we do materially to benefit the most women? And, you know, given that none of us has a million dollars and, and the, the, the cost of land here on Vancouver Island and Western Canada, Canada in general is, is crazy. Um, but we can certainly promote the idea. We can certainly tell, it, it doesn't have to be purchasing a farm. It can be, you know, um, purchasing a home together, renting a home together. This is a real movement that's happening across North America with, uh, with more and more single older women, especially, <laughs> getting together. Um, so the Women's Land Project, we had intended to have a tour last spring, last May. Um, where I was going to go to communities and, and give a series of talks, uh, visit um, women who had been involved with uh, collectives that, have, that don't exist anymore, uh, visit with women who were interested in, in starting a new one or who had land, you know, to try and connect land and, uh, and, and women who want to work that land because it is a tremendous amount of work to create a community where, where there is none. Are there any publications like how to set up a women's land? Have you got any guides that we could we oh, can wow. so we can <laughs> set ones up where where we live? There's one publication. It's called Maze M I M A I Z E, and uh, this is a listing. She started this. Jay Hubbard started this uh, publication um, probably 15 years ago, and uh, yes, they still do publish regularly, and. Um, so it, it, it listed lists all the, the collectives and, and, and many of the listings are not up to date. And so it's been a process for me of going through some of those listings and contacting those women 
uh, who are contact people for and, and find out if those communities still exist. Um, and it's, it has listings all over the world in Europe and in other countries, um, mostly in North America. Do you find that you get yeah. attacks from trans activists and people like, people saying that you're excluding men who say that they're women or are you generally left to get on with it? This has been a real sanctuary here. It's been very peaceful. It's been really wonderful. Um, and But there is a there is an, a concerted effort in Canada. Uh, there is a, one foundation, it's, it's, it holds itself out as a charitable foundation, I believe, that is trying to strip charitable status from, from other groups. Um, if they if they don't specifically include trans trans women, so it's going after specifically women's groups like Vancouver Rape Relief. Many of us may be familiar with uh, the work that those women have been doing for it's Vancouver's long. It's uh, Canada's longest running uh, rape crisis center, and they had their um, their funding from the city of Vancouver was was canceled uh, because of the work of this uh, foundation, the Morgan Ogre. Foundation or Morgan Oje Foundation, and um, so the this they are continuing to to try and strip charitable status from that group. Uh, I'm sure if they were aware uh, they, of other groups, they might go after them personally as well. But this, you know, these these initiatives, there's there is no outside funding coming in. This is completely funded by women, as the 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 um, Michigan the Mishfest land was completely crowdfunded. So that is, um, they can't take that away. I, I, they cannot take that away. So this is something permanent that women are building. Keep in mind that women can do anything. As you know, women can do everything. Um, this, the Women's Land Project is uh, it's not only uh, the potential to, to build a refuge to, to create uh, the uh, sort of a a place to develop the ideas. You know, women and lesbians, uh, radical feminists are rising again. They, we are coming together. This is something that is a cycle that goes around, and uh, we're we need to be prepared when when this this shift happens again. I'd like to uh, welcome now Paulina uh, Tiplakova from Russia. She's a radical feminist and editorial member of lesbian political magazine Vesnitsa in Russia. And um, uh, Paulina, could you tell us a little bit about the situation in Russia uh, for lesbians. We are a little behind other countries right now because we're here in Russia, we are more conservative, uh, opposite to neopatriarchal you know, politics that is happening now is Europe, in US. I wouldn't say that our lesbian community is small here, but everyone here knows each other, at least through someone, especially, you know, locally in the cities. We don't really have women-only spaces to hang out. We have something like, uh, you know, in my city, GBT Resource Center, but it's open to trans, trans lesbians, uh, you know, and uh, men, so it's not really, you know, safe. And some bars, as far as I know, do have some lesbian parties on certain days, but, but most of the times uh, there are often so-called drag queens 
on the stage performing and there is not really a barriers from men and things like that. So the safest and most popular place to meet for Russian lesbians is just our flats. It's, it's just our homes, just our flats or sometimes no parks, but mostly just, just our flats. How did you find other lesbians? Like, and how did you start to meet people? I decided to become a lesbian when I first learned about radical feminism. It was almost five years ago. I was 16 at the time. And I just came on one of the meetings of just, you know, random people talking about books. It wasn't, you know, feminist thing. And there was, uh, you know, women lesbians who actually were starting to you know get into radical feminism and I learned from them and so we for some time uh, just gathered at their place uh, with other women who were interested from our circles uh, you know our, our circles of friends or people or women we know and uh, that's that's how I first I, I think met lesbians <laughs> there was also some kind of a lesbian community I was in. So when I was in my teenage years, uh, there were just, you know, young women like me who were mo mostly lesbians. But that's, that's mostly it. In groups, do you, uh, do you find that the gender identity politics is uh, aggressive or negative towards lesbians? Do, do you get men who are saying you should go out with um uh with them and they're saying or or is it do they leave you alone and we are not really you know visible in our country and we are just doing this mostly in our flats or online so we don't really i haven't really you know met aggressive men who were saying to me well i i met my dad who said <laughs> something like that but it's a little different if we're talking about the place, uh, the Russian feminism right now, we are mostly online. We are mostly connecting via, you know, Twitter and our local Facebook, uh, you know, something like Facebook, but it's Russian network. So from, you know, with feminists and lesbians from other cities and, uh, you know, there were there were cases and I think they're gonna repeat that this Russian network we are mostly all connected in. They, for example, deleted some uh, feminist groups, especially uh, some groups that were openly, you know, talking about radical feminism, about political lesbianism. I remember that that happened. There's also, you know, some kind of censorship there's, uh, you know, some group online that I'm, you know, that I read their posts. And once there were, there was some post that was radical, you know, not exactly, not exactly, you know, it was talking good about men. So it got deleted by, you know, the administration of that network. So this is what's happening. And of course, if you say something controversial on, you know, Russian side of Twitter, it's going to blow up and the men, of course, uh, are going to go there and tell you so many bad things, you know, uh, 
this happens. You're working on issues to do with women's culture and lesbian visibility in art. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I actually um, have already brought up this topic in one of the online publications uh, in, you know, Lesbian Political Magazine Investments that I'm a part of. And uh, I actually, this topic is important for me, partly because, you know, who doesn't like, you know, listen to good music and read, you know, good books and something like that. And I have many amazing friends who are lesbians, who are radical feminists, who are doing, you know, this job with are doing, you know, art for women. And I myself, you know, writing some songs, at least trying, so I can, you know, make something, make it bigger. So I think I'm gonna talk about you know, my, my topic. And I want to start with losses. Because in the discussion of political lesbianism, there is a certain tendency to focus on losses, to focus on things that we supposedly have to give up when we take on the path of resistance to male power. And cultural separatism, as far as I heard from other women, is considered one of the hardest things to do compared to other things, to separatism, if we don't count, you know, going to the woods and living with other women, that's, that's one of the hardest to, you know, give up the patriarchal culture. And I've heard so many women regretfully recall films and books and music that due to their political choices, they can no longer enjoy the way they used to art created by men and women identified with men is seen as a vital and irreplaceable part of life. So where, where is the basis of this so-called emotional and aesthetic pleasure that is so impossible and unbearable for women to give up? And women describe their experiences with male culture as an opportunity to relax, to experience joy and comfort, this pleasure is rooted in the woman's realization that when she consumes the products of male culture, she demonstrates the correct heterosexual behavior. She is once again reminded of where her place really is in the system of male supremacy. She is humiliated in her attempts to find consolation. The culture of the dominant class becomes the last bastion of her entertainment. As this pleasure, it's not what it seems. It's not a rest from a difficult female existence. It's not a restoration of emotional resources. It's nothing more than just a feeling of relief from escaping the imaginary punishment for a thought crime against male power. Slaves shouldn't have their own culture because its existence leads to the develop development of group consciousness. And men understand that very well. So it's important for them to keep women separated from each other and alienated from themselves and their feelings. The widespread myth of romantic love successfully handles this task, which among other instruments of male power is actively being implemented into the female consciousness with the help of art and culture. And regardless of the skill of the author, you know, the depth of the general message, the presence of female characters, such work 
cannot be considered a male representation and therefore has no value in women's eyes since it's not intended for women. Men write songs and shoot films exclusively for other men. All art created within the framework of the patriarchal paradigm is actually a retelling of political propaganda that promotes the institution of heterosexuality and male values. A man's idea of what a woman should be like, what feelings she is allowed to experience and what thoughts to have. Women gain nothing by devoting their time and their thoughts to men, admiring overvalued art, broadcasting male ideology and contributing to patriarchal culture. Heterosexual behavior destroys the female consciousness, prevents the development of female group consciousness and makes the existence system stronger. Women identification is a source of strength. If a woman is deprived of it, and wastes her resources of men, she loses herself and loses contact with other women. Yes, indeed, the prospect of cultural deprivation seems to be a terrifying fate, but the truth is that male culture has never belonged to women, which means that its abandonment does not mean the loss of something truly important and dear to a woman's heart. We have nothing to lose because we don't have anything in male culture for us to begin with. And this should be a motivation for creators to make art from women, for women, and about women. Like, you know, Alex Dobkin said, <laughs> the works that will not become the retelling of male propaganda chest in girl power, but will contribute to women's culture. And also for contemplators to support the creators of such works. Women don't lose anything when they choose political lesbianism. The refusal to engage in heterosexual behavior is a step beyond the line of despiance, but the slip of faith doesn't end on a lonely and empty road. Beyond the line of disobedience, there is life. And this is the only thing that can be even called life for women in a world where everything and especially culture is permitted with the ideology of male dominance. No woman can claim that she is not a lesbian. When women say that they are not lesbians, they overlook the fact that the image of lesbians in male culture is created with the participation of men and adjusted to their vision to lesbianism. Then who are lesbians if they are not the ones shown in movies? How can we be lesbians if we don't have access to lesbian culture? The visibility of lesbians is also the visibility of their culture. Lesbianism is not about lesbian sexual relationships. It's an emotional, intellectual, and creative connection between women. Any activity, emotional, intellectual, and creative, needs support. And therefore, the real act of lesbianism is to support women's art, women's music, and women's intellectual activities. This is the only way we can achieve what we call lesbian visibility. And we can't rely on men and wait for their help in this matter. Men can't be our allies in issue of lesbian visibility. Only we ourselves, by making a political choice of focusing our resources on women, can influence and enhance lesbian visibility, our visibility. I want to, uh, you know, dedicate my speech and to her because 
she was honestly such an inspiration and her music is still out there and I think she will continue to be an inspiration for generations of lesbians to come because she did many amazing things and she did many things to you know enhance this lesbian visibility we want. Angela Wilde is from France, UK. She's a political artist, a radical lesbian feminist activist, a writer based in the UK. She's a founding member of Get the L Out UK and creator of Wild Women Workshop. She's a member of the International Network of Powerful Women Artists. That's fantastic. Can you tell us, um, Angela, about your work and um, also about uh, the Lesbian Me Too project? What's it about and why is the need to record lesbians' experience separately? I wanted to start um, uh, with some some like points on language that I always make when I start to speak about transgenderism and the impact on women and lesbians. Um, so to enable a clear political analysis based on sex, not gender, based on material reality, not ideology, and as a feminist statement of resistance, I reject the use of patriarchal, queerified language and never use preferred pronouns. I always refer to males as he, even if he identifies otherwise. Preferred pronouns are a form of gaslighting. We have evidence that perpetrators use them purposely against their victim to lower their differences. And I think it's important to oppose this and to name male violence for what it is. And this is what radical feminists have always done. So now to, um, to the project, um, Lesbian Me Too is a social media project that we set up um, at Get The L Out. And it's offering a lesbian only space where lesbians can report their experiences of uh, male violence um, uh, um, against, against us. We include sexual violence and harassment against lesbians when it's committed by any men, even those who call themselves women and lesbians. The website is available in many languages and we accept testimonies in any language that you have and we try to make it as international and accessible as possible, so please use it. Um, <clears throat> Lesbian Me Too is an environment where lesbians are believed and um, once like we are feminists, we believe women, full stop, we're feminists first. We do not edit the testimonies to fit any narrative. We publish them as they come. And the only thing that we do, and it's not by choice, is we retract the name of the perpetrators when these are sent to us. Um, in our site, lesbians are able to um, report their experience completely anonymously. There is no pressure to be named or to collect email addresses. So uh, women's safety is absolutely crucial. Um, now you were asking me about why we record lesbian experiences separately. Uh, it's really important, actually, we've been asked a few times, you know, lesbians are women, surely lesbians are sexually harassed or raped as women, uh, is our oppression not the same as women who are not lesbians? And sometimes we're also told that collecting lesbian testimonies separately uh, runs the risk of dividing women. And I wanted to say that we couldn't disagree more. And our take is that, you know, if we we don't actually know if lesbian experience of sexual violence is the same as other women unless we look specifically for this and that's why there's a need for women from diverse group to speak uh, in their own names how else are we supposed to know what's going on uh, and i think in fact not speaking about the difference of experience and pretending that women's experiences are all, all the same everywhere is in fact what causes potential divisions um, in our mind, of course, all women are oppressed, but men oppress us differently depending on our belonging into different groups. And if we don't focus specifically on different groups, then some group might be speaking on behalf of everyone else. 
and some groups might be erased entirely. And that's what creates tension and division between women. And I wanted to say this word intersectionality that we hear a lot about. And I think it's a very important tool that we can and should use in a radical feminist framework because each of the intersection that we're talking about is a potential division between women that men use against us if they can and they do it all the time. Uh, so in the gender critical movement, at least in the UK, we've had many voices already. Trans widows have spoken, detransitioners speak, victim of sexual violence speak about the importance of women only space for them. And all these voices bring a different perspective. And when we listen properly to all of them, we can start to see the scale of the complexities, you know, and the depth of the problem. And I think we need even more women to speak about their specific experience and particularly more silenced voices. So um, particularly, I'd love, like, I'd be really curious to see a group of black women tech on gen transgenderism as a collective, you know? Is there a particular black detransition lesbian experience that maybe we're not hearing about because we don't focus specifically on this particular group? We need to hear direct testimonies from women in prison. You see what I'm like doing? There are women that we don't yet hear about. And um, for us, if we accept the fact that women are all oppressed in the same way, then we miss out a lot. And we miss out specifically anti-lesbianism and we miss out certain ceiling stories, which is why this project exists. exists. What is the nature of anti-lesbianism and how does sexual violence play a role in anti-lesbianism generally? Yeah, well, we, we have a political understanding of sexuality. We understand that lesbians are oppressed because we're part of the group woman, uh, but also that lesbians oppression has a political basis and that lesbians are oppressed specifically because male access to women, including sexual access, is a cornerstone of male power over women. And men need access to women uh, for patriarchy to function. So um, a lesbian is a woman who breaks that patriarchal contract. She denies men access to her and she's a dissident. And even if a lesbian has no political consciousness of doing this, uh, saying no to men is a political act and lesbians are punished for this no. Um, lesbians are pressured by all the forces that patriarchy possess to live with men or to be with men anyway. This is what we call compulsory heterosexuality. Some of the most obvious uh, form of um, compulsory heterosexuality is promoting heterosexuality as normal and calling lesbians perverts, for example. And another one that we talk about a lot is lesbian erasure. Lesbians are not seen, not heard in mainstream culture, in the straight feminist movement, throughout history, lesbian contribution are erased and so on. And that leaves the impression that everyone's straight and it makes it practically impossible for lesbian to well, find each other and be lesbians. Uh, and in, the broad, in that broader context, sexual violence is one of the tactics that men use to make us straight. So corrective rape stories, cotton ceiling rape stories, share this theme of fucking the dyke away. Um, you know, all she needs is a good dick type, type of thing. And it's about enforcing a sex act in order to enforce a behavior, in order to have our submission and it's conversion therapy. Um, and have you got any findings yet from the Lesbian Me Too project? Have you gathered evidence? Can you tell us about how it's going so far? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's still early stage, but we've got around 30 testimonies. And so far, a third of these testimonies are cotton ceiling stories, which mean a third of the women who reported sexual violence uh, by men. This, this violence has been committed by men who identify as women. So I, I, I don't have time to speak about everything. I wanted to focus on the cotton ceiling today. 
And uh, the theme that we see emerging at the moment is young lesbians into queer communities who themselves identify as trans or non-binary. They seem to be the most like obvious target, particularly vulnerable. We see um, that they are extremely isolated um, and they have no contact with other lesbians. And in that context, they, they experience a lot of social pressure to conform to queer language and the trans propaganda. A lot of this happened in university. It's something that really is quite recurrent and online uh, with a lot of grooming and brainwashing. And this, these lesbians are very young. We see how language is used to break lesbians' boundaries. Um, you know, the confusion of language reflects the confusion of the mind and the enforcement of the pronouns all the time. And we see gaslighting and you know, the story is if I'm not, if I am a lesbian, I have to accept penises because this is what real lesbians do. Uh, this kind of rhetoric is absolutely everywhere. Um, one very disturbing thing is the extreme age gap that we start seeing emerging with perpetrators being older males often and uh, victims or survivors being very young, sometimes teenagers. So it's very disturbing. And in terms of perpetrators motivation, the need for validation of the male to be seen as a real lesbian. So a whole AGP autogenophilia theme going on there. Um, male fantasies to have lesbian sex, which is porn led, of course. Um, the will of the men who identify as trans to change lesbian sexuality. This is also repeating and very disturbing and not surprising. Lots of pornography. We hear about anime porn, furries, like normal pornography. BDSM, and in the context of BDSM, uh, incest play, age play, which means age gap thing, very, very like horrible. And these all are things that are used and done to young lesbians in the queer community by these men. How are you managing to get this away? And can we help sort of publish yeah, something? Of course, yeah, I want to say one, one last thing on the finding. The last post is very, very important. The last post we've received on the website names the perpetrator. So we've retracted that name. The perpetrator is a famous so-called gender critical intersex male. Somebody that is known in the gender critical community to be, you know, pro-feminist and ally. Okay, just to be sure. Um, so how can we, what up? So what we want to say is that rape victims need to be heard, even when the perpetrator identifies as a woman, it makes no difference. The victims need to be heard and we are calling on all lesbians to use the website, share it in your network, wherever you are, because we try to accommodate as many languages as uh, possible, send it to your friend, submit your own story and make use of it in every possible way. It's a very, very useful tool and is devised to make sure that cotton seeding stories are not erased. They, you know, we, we've got a lot of LGBT basically says it doesn't happen. We also have a feminist movement or gender critical movement really doesn't want to, to look at this because it's maybe too disturbing. I don't know, but this is all contributing to lesbian erasure and the more we raise this to the forefront the more we talk about it we share these stories um the the more we contribute to breaking the silencing of cotton ceiling rape survivors which is what it's all about really uh, can you update us a bit on get the l out it was such a fantastic i mean it is such an amazingly brilliant initiative but can you tell us when it started and what's what's going on now if anything Okay, so very quickly, uh, we have been uh, known to disrupt um, um, Pride in London in 2018. And uh, I think this action has raised um, 
the visibility of the problem of lesbians within the queer community where actually no one was really talking about it in the in the ground you know scheme of things even in the gender critical movement it was all very straight uh you know straight issue based and we wanted to talk about lesbian issues and that was a way we managed to do that um we have had several actions uh, after that where we were able to go places and there were pride marches to disrupt. <laughs> in 2019, I published um, the Lesbian at Ground Zero cotton sealing research where it's actually the first research on cotton sealing where survivors have been sharing this story. And it's really important actually in the context of the LFT with Susan speaking that this is translated now in German and will be available online. So you'll be able to download this and read it in, in the German language. Um, that's it. and I will speak at the Lesbian Spring Gathering next week, Sunday, in English at length about the cotton ceiling. Great. And my last question is, could you show us the book that you were showing um, when Zoe was doing her chat, your book about uh, women's lands? Yes, uh, I have yeah. found this uh, antique, absolutely vintage, amazing book. Uh, which is called Lesbian Land, and it's a collection of, of uh, stories of women who have um, started or lived in women's land, um, how they did it, but also the challenges. It's really, really important to read about the challenges because it's, you know, it's difficult to start from scratch. You're creating something completely new, and I think this is a really great, great resource. So Lesbian Land, I wanted to bring like a conversation to maybe specifically UK feminists who may be listening or UK gender critical. I wanted to point out about the risk of dismissing the voice of survivors of sexual violence by AGP men, going back to that. Uh, trans widows, cotton ceiling rape survivors who are lesbians and other women. Um, and I say that in the context of the discussion around Kathleen Stock's new book that maybe you've heard all the controversy about and in the spirit of opening a political discussion, if we do not listen to the voices of survivors, if we do not listen or we dismiss or we demonize radical feminist analysis and research and radical feminist and most of the time a lot of us are lesbians as well, we're the only one who ever look at sexual violence against women, against lesbian and also the only one naming men as our oppressor you know, there can be, it's very clear from us that there is no common cause with AGP men. And from a lesbian perspective, a man who calls himself an, a lesbian is an AGP. A man who calls himself a lesbian by definition is breaking our sexual boundary. And a man who breaks sexual boundaries is a potential rapist. There is no common cause. Um, I wanted to say, you know, this is why not all men, not all trans, not all AGP doesn't function as a feminist analysis. There are AGP men around who make pornography of themselves invading women's toilets and only us speak about that. And this is why we need to have a collective conversation about not taking so-called gender critical trans women at face value. Men who identify as women are invaders. Those who have managed to trick some of us to enter our movement while still enforcing their ideology are just better skilled invaders and some of them are also sexual predators towards lesbian towards their wives towards their lesbian wives and um this is a call out you know when agps are platformed at the expense of their victims you know we need to have uh, i really encourage gender critical and feminists to think collectively about who is being silenced here thank you so much for coming jenny um jenny white is from new zealand she's an activist member of women's liberation Aotia, Tira, if you, you'd be able to pronounce it, obviously tell us how to pronounce uh, it. Yeah. 
and welcome and um it's great to get an update for you to find out what's going on um one of your organization is a signatory organization of women's oh, yeah. rights campaign maybe you could tell us about sort of why your women's lesbian organization uh, women's liberation group sort of are worried about uh gender identity ideology and i am a, a member of women's liberation aotearoa which is this uh generally accepted as the Māori name for um, New Zealand and I've kind of got used to using it actually. Um, so Women's Liberation is I guess um, a splinter group from Speak Up for Women. So we decided to set up a more uh, left-wing group and um, I didn't think I was coming here to speak tonight particularly as part of that group but um, yeah, I'm in a few things. We've got a, a few groups in, in New Zealand at the moment. And as you mentioned, uh, Lesbian Visibility for Action. Uh, lesbian, lesbian Action for Visibility in Aotearoa. I'll just hold that up. There's a little oh, card. Great, yeah. I don't know if you can see that. It actually looks like it's mirror image there. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk more about that because that's specific to um, Lesbian Visibility. That's your topic tonight. So... That group originally got set up back in the 1990s um, to ensure that the word lesbian was included in our Human Rights um, Act, because at the time um, there was uh, a push to include protection, specific protected, you know, um, protection for like you know gay men and lesbians and bisexual people, but. The wording was just going to be, you know, in the definition of sexual orientation, which is what's protected, um, it didn't mention lesbians specifically. So LAVA, that's the acronym. So that's what it stands yeah, for. Um, set up to uh, lobby politicians to make sure that there was specific protection for, you know, women uh, who were lesbian rather than just a generic term of, you know, homosexuals. And that was successful. Um, so now in, in our human rights legislation, we have, you know, protection on the ground of sexual orientation, including, you know, being a lesbian. Um, so a couple of things about that. One is that, yes, in New Zealand, as everywhere else, um, lesbian is, you know, being redefined without any discussion to mean, well, anyone who says they're a lesbian, basically. Um, and at the same time, our Human Rights Commission that, you know, implements that act um, doesn't, doesn't recognise, you know, lesbian rights anymore. So, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, we had a, um, a, a group of young women who have a, a, a young women's lesbian network um, wanted to have a stall at, um, it's part of Pride, this thing called Out out in the square, you know, and everyone sets up stalls. They they wanted to have a stall to sell badges and things like that. And uh, there were complaints and their stall got, um, you know, they, they had an agreement that they would have it, they paid for it, and then it got pulled. They weren't allowed to have it because they were considered transphobic. Simply because they define lesbians as women, you know, who um, are exclusively sexually oriented to women. So. They tried to lay a complaint with our Human Rights Commission and the commission said, well, you don't really have a ground for complaint because anyone can be a lesbian. So that's, you know, 
that's shocking. <laughs> I find your it government, shocking. Your government's quite uh, very pro-trans from what we can see. Is and, Yeah. And you've, yeah. Picked, um, you've picked that guy to represent New Zealand in the weightlifting. Yes, our whole um, public sector, the entire way that New Zealand operates has been um, infiltrated, I guess, and it, it sounds a bit like a conspiracy theorist, but there is a definite push to... Um, you know, replace everything that, that was, you know, like um, sex-based with gender. I mean, our statistics department has just decided that they're going to only record people's gender, you know, um, and, and, and in all circumstances, unless there's a specific reason to record sex. And, you know, I mean, if you want, uh, I saw that somebody had, had uh, posted in, in one of our groups, a job application, an online form where you put in your name and everything and then you enter your pronouns, it was a compulsory field. You couldn't apply for the job unless you entered your pronouns. So it is throughout um, our public sector here. And it's all been done without any discussion. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, bureaucrats whose role is to enforce this stuff. So, you know, from the very highest people in the public sector, um, down through, you know, every every organisation, um, you know, has to get uh, a rainbow tick. There's a group called Rainbow Tick in New Zealand who go around and they give you a certificate to your organisation to say that you're LGBTQIA++ friendly. And, you know, once you've got your rainbow tick, if you do anything that makes it seem like you're, you know, transphobic, they'll come and say to you, oh, you know, you might lose your rainbow tick if you don't do this or that. And rainbow tick is just a bunch of people. They're a private organization. They charge about $20,000 a pop um, to people, you know, to get the damn thing. I imagine it's really impacting very badly on young lesbians because they're, they don't remember the days when there were lesbian communities. Mm. Mm. They've never seen them. It depends. You know, there are there are plenty of young lesbians who say that they're fine with this. Um, one of the things I wanted to tell you about, actually, was LAVA, so this Lesbian Action for Visibility in Aotearoa, we, we reformed. So, you know, that group um, got lesbian put into the Human Rights Act, and, you know, we all thought everything would be fine in terms of human rights um, until this happened, you know, until these young women that I was just saying, you know, had that stall banned from, from a public um, pride event. And so LAVA has sort of reformed and it's mostly older women. There's there's a couple of younger women in it, but it, I'm I'm one of the young women in it. So that gives you an idea. It's mostly older women. And we have reformed to, um, you know, ensure that lesbian rights are protected in New Zealand. It's like a tidal wave, but it's quite hard to, to you know, there's so many things happening across the board that it's hard to know what to focus on at one time. So LAVA decided to hold some protests. We had a protest outside the Ministry for Women. Um, and, you know, people turned up and screamed at us that we should die because we're old <laughs> and things. And, that, you know, our ideas need to die. Um and, you know, we did a, a few actions, you know, so handing out some leaflets outside a, a, a government kind of conference for rainbow people. So, you know, uh, a few of the women in Lava decided to, to leaflet that. And because of this um, 
again, this pride, the same Pride Festival that comes up, it's an annual thing. And this year it was called Out in the City. And um, we had a stall booked and we were going to have a display, a history display of uh, lesbian history of Wellington, right? So, um, and it, th these women made it, it was all handmade. It was quite an amazing thing. Um, and at very short notice before the event, uh, we got told our stall would be banned, that we weren't allowed to have a stall at out in the city, which used to be called the Lesbian and Gay Fair. It's been around for a quarter of a century and, you know, it, it was just for lesbians and gays and now it's been rebranded um, and lesbians aren't, <laughs> aren't welcome, it would seem. So we, we instead um, got permission from the police and the council to hold the, the you know, put this display outside the event. And um, the organisers of the event, the Pride event, um, corralled all these young people to come and stand in front of it and chant trans women are women and things like that so that nobody attending could see the, the map display. So, you know, it, it's a strange world when rainbow organisations so-called are actively organising so that a lesbian visibility organisation can't be seen. It's, it's quite crazy. In Britain, there was the Edinburgh Festival, which was the official festival, and they excluded sort of more alternative events. And the, the fringe has now become more important. So I sort of dream of a time when if they exclude us from all of these events, we just set up fringe events. Yes. Hopefully yeah. it grows so that it becomes embarrassing. There's more of us on the outside at these fringe, yeah. like, you know. I think, I think we do yeah. need to do that. And actually in 2019, when the young women's group uh, were told they weren't allowed to participate, they did actually set up an alternative um, event. And that was, that was actually when lava sort of began to grow again because a lot of the older women were invited. So in a way, it was young lesbians that made, you know, this sort of activism start again in New Zealand. So those, those young women are still around. Um, they're a bit cagey about meeting up with, um, you know, older lesbians as a, as a big group. They like to do their own thing. They've got sort of some different views on stuff these days. But, you know, I, I still have contact with some of them and meet up occasionally. They're pretty good fun and they've got lots of energy and they like to do their own things. One of the best books I've ever, ever read is If Women Counted, which was by Marilyn Waring, who's... Oh, right. Students. Yeah. And I was raving about it and getting all my friends to read it in the 1990s. But these, so there, quite a lot of them were lib femmes. And they all said, oh, yes, we read the first couple of chapters because they're about economics and feminist economics and statistics on women. And then, it, then she has a couple of great chapters on lesbians at the end and mm. loads of women were saying to me oh but we never finished it <laughs> because of <laughs> they didn't want to admit that they had read a chapter about lesbian visibility and and the, the economics wow. but how about Marilyn Waring is she involved in in politics and feminism um, she's she's um I think she's still working as a uh, professor at a university now she's not um, every now and then people remember Marilyn Waring and, and ask her opinion on things because she's actually a pretty amazing person. However, um, she hasn't had anything to say on this matter. Yeah. And 
I mean, like you say, you know, our government has been completely captured and really the media has as well. It's it's kind of like everyone... I mean, we do know that, that there are people in government who oppose this or even just question it, you know, but they're like, you know, an, an animal in the headlights. They, they don't know what way to go. We've got um, Official Information Act material that's come from the department that's supposed to be putting sex self-identification laws through. And you can read, read their conversations that they've had with each other. They've got no idea how to deal with it. They know that there's problems, you know, but they, they, they're too afraid to speak with, um, you know, gender critical groups. They're too afraid because if they do, then someone else might find out, put in an official information act request and see that they met with, you know, speak up for women or someone like that. And suddenly everyone will accuse them of transphobia for meeting with TERFs, you know? So they're kind of paralyzed really. And the only people who get heard, it seems, is, you know, the, the new version of what Rainbow is.